We are going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible um, and get ready for that. Um, Another announcement I want to make while we're we're getting ready is um, has to do with something I've talked about over the last two Sundays. Um, So I have mentioned that we are working on uh, starting a conversation as a church with Christ at the center um, where we are able to talk through difficult things um, together, again, with Christ at the center. And the current conversation happening in the world around us has to do with racism, has to do with police brutality. And so this past week was able to sit down with uh, four of our members um, from Solid Rock Church, two who are black, two who are white, and we talk through the really hard topics that our world is seemingly not finding any uh, unity on, and we were able to talk about those things from four different perspectives with Christ at the center. And we're going to be releasing that video tomorrow morning. Um, it is about an hour and a half long conversation, so you may need to sit down and watch it in chunks or set aside time to watch. Um, but here's what I want to say. Like, our goal is not um, to issue a statement and then move on thinking we've solved the problem. Really, our goal is to just start a conversation together, uh, to, to display a model to the world around us, what it looks like to talk about something difficult from multiple perspectives with Christ at the center. And so, um, so we were able to do that this last week. And our hope is not that this, this video would go out and the problem is solved and we moved on. But really our hope is that this would be just one step in having this conversation together. One of the things that I've, I've talked about or used as a metaphor is the idea that um, the pathway to healing or the, the, the roadway to healing is, is this long conversation we need to have. We're hearing one another. However, what I'm seeing in the world around us is that we aren't even able to get on the on-ramp to have this conversation. The conversation gets derailed, um, if you look at social media, long before we ever make it to the highway to where we can travel together and learn from one another in a, in a way that we can work towards healing and reconciliation. So all that to say, um, again, this video isn't meant to solve the problem. It's just meant to be the on-ramp and to kind of model what that should look like. And hopefully it's helpful for you um, as you begin to engage in this conversation uh, in your world. Um, We want to offer up some direction. So that will come out tomorrow morning. Be looking for that email. Um, And then we welcome your feedback and questions. Again, we want this to be the beginning of a conversation, uh, not a statement that we issue and move on. So any questions you have or feedback, feel free to send those in. All right. So we are in John chapter 13 this morning. And if you've been here over the last six months, you're probably going, wait a second. I thought we took a break from the Gospel of John for the summer. Now here we are back in the Gospel of John. That's true. If you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a while, we spent the first six months of 2020 in the Gospel of John. Uh, We made it through chapter six, and then we've taken a break for the summer to walk through a sermon series entitled The Light in the Darkness. And what we are doing is we're looking at how um, this biblical metaphor of the light plays out in the church what that means for us, starting with Christ himself, who made this statement, I am the light, the light of the world. Uh, We know in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, uh, there'll be no need for sun or moon in the new heaven and new earth because the glory of the Lord will be our light. We know John chapter one introduces Jesus and says that in him was the light and the life of men. And so now we're at Matthew chapter five where Jesus says to his followers these words. Matthew chapter five, you don't need to turn there, stay in John 13, Uh, but he says this in verse 14, you are the light of the world. He goes on to say, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so those three verses there from Matthew 5 will really guide us this summer through the series. And so I want to pull two things out of that today before we move into John 13. First of all, that opening phrase, you are the light of the world. So we talked about last week how that word you is plural. So in a sense, Jesus is saying you all, talking about all of his followers, are the light of the world. But what's equally important is to notice that the word light is singular. So he doesn't say, you all are a collection of a bunch of lights that need to shine into the world. He's saying something um, remarkable when he says, you all somehow come together as one light to shine as a bright light into the world around you. You all collectively are singularly the light of the world. So last week we looked at how there's no way we can begin to be a light in the world around us until we are first coming together, knitting our hearts together in Christ-exalting worship. That before we shine a light anywhere, we've got to first reflect that light back towards Christ. And we looked in Psalm 96 at how we are called as true followers of Christ to exalt him, to tell about his salvation, to sing about his glory, even as we meet together. And uh, one of the quotes from last week from Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 96 was this, that the fervent light of the church shines brightest when we are believing in and worshiping the Trinitarian God of the Bible and I love how our worship team has led us to do that this morning, to sing about this Trinitarian God that we have believed in, we have staked our lives upon as we exalt that God, the God of the Bible. We begin to shine bright into the world around us. And now today what we're gonna do is take that a step further. Before we can take that light out into the world around us, the world that does not know Christ, something has to happen distinctly within the relationships of the church. Today we're gonna to talk about biblical community and if, if the topic of biblical community would, would fit in a barrel, all we're gonna to do today is pull the lid back and look inside. Like there's no way we're gonna make it to the bottom of the barrel of all that it means to be a biblical community centered in Christ. I wanna say this as well, and I'll probably say it again. If you are here today and your primary relationship with this church is on Sunday mornings, I hope that you come on Sunday mornings because you found something good here. And so today, rather than being um, a, a challenge to you, what I hope today is to you is an invitation to go deeper into that. Whatever is drawing you to this place that you would find in today an invitation to even go further into your relationships with within biblical community. And so we're gonna go there today from John chapter 13. Let's do this, starting in verse one. All right, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, this kind of sets the scene. So the public ministry of Jesus is really bookmarked with these Passover meals. We saw that earlier in the Gospel of John. The beginning of his public ministry was marked by a Passover meal. 
And so now we're towards the end of his public ministry, and this is where in Matthew 26, Matthew captures this moment in the upper room where they break bread and they share a cup, and Jesus initiates communion as the symbolic reminder of his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And so this is, I believe, the same Passover meal that we're reading about here. So Jesus is in the upper room with whom? The 12. This is a very intimate moment, right, with 12 guys who know each other really well. And here in this description, we're already reading that this is a distinct group of people out of the world. It's described to us this, week, this way. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this is not the same thing as John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's true, God loves the world. But what we're reading about here is a distinct group of people who have become followers of Jesus to the point where he would describe them as his own. And when we track Jesus through the Gospel of John, we know that thousands, really tens of thousands of people have come to follow Jesus only to do what? To turn around and go back home. Many have come, many have gone. Those are not the ones he's calling his own. He's calling his own the ones who have followed him faithfully to the end. And now it's important to know that of the tens of thousands who have followed him to the end, he's got 12 here. Now this is not the full expression of those who had followed because we know that there were also those like like Mary, both of the Marys. We know that at um, the tomb, at the resurrection, there there were several women there at the tomb. So it's larger than just these 12, but it's a pretty small group considering the thousands who once followed Jesus. And so when he talks about loving his own who are in the world, he's talking about a distinct group of people who have forsaken all things to follow him at all costs all the way to the end. And he's saying he has loved them to the end. Now think about that. Not only did Jesus know these 12 really well, but these 12 more so than anybody knew him, right? I mean, these were the ones who lived with him They ate with him, they slept with him, they journeyed with him. But not only that, these 12 know each other really well, right? Like Peter really knows John more than you and I know John. Like John really knows Peter. He can see that look in Peter's eye and he knows Peter's about to say something he shouldn't say. Peter's about to stick his foot in his mouth again. Like they know each other on that level. Now I want you to think about like your relationships and and the people in your life who you are called to love, the greatest amount amount of self-sacrifice, those people are the people that you know the best and who know you the best, and consequently, they're the people that oftentimes are the hardest people to love. The people in your life who you are called to love the most are oftentimes the people who are hardest to love. Everybody who's married should be going, that's right. Anybody who's ever been married should be going, that's true. Why? Because the more we get to know a person, the more we know their flaws, their weaknesses, the more we discover all the reasons why that person is not lovable, yet that is the person we are called to love the most, starting with our marriages. Think about that, like dating. You didn't fall in love with the real version of your spouse. You fell in love with the dating version. Right? It's like the Sunday morning version of the Christian. It's easy to smell good and look good for two or three hours on a Friday night. 
right? Like to, to, to put the best you out there, and it's easy to fall in love with the best version of you, but then you get engaged, and you start having to plan a wedding, and you start to see the worst in one another, and you start to wonder, is this really the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? And you make a decision, right? Yes, I'm going to go to the next step with this person, and then you get married, right? And now all of a sudden, they wake up in the morning, their breath stinks. They get grumpy and irritable, and you begin to discover, the more you get to discover that person, the harder it is to love them. Now think about that. Jesus wasn't collecting 12 strangers in a room saying, hey guys, I want y'all to get along and love each other. He was calling 12 people in this moment who had lived the last three years together. Like they knew the worst of each other. He says that Jesus loved them even to the end. And now he's gonna do something in this moment to highlight the relationship that he wants them to have with one another. Verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around, uh, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we know this as the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Most of us have heard some version of this, right? The question isn't, do you know the story? The bigger question is, why in the world would Jesus do that, and what in the world did he want us to get out of it? We understand what happens. They're at the dinner table. They're all reclining at the dinner table. In this first century world in the upper room, they were probably at a really low table, sitting on the ground, laid back, kicked back, enjoying the Passover meal. So Jesus stops the meal and stands up. He rises. He takes out his outer garment, the garment of dignity. Well, he was exposing himself in an appropriate way to the rest of the people in the room. But he was humbling himself as he did that. As he took out the outer garment, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, went and grabbed a basin of water, and then began to wash his disciples' feet. Now there's a couple of things that I think are helpful to know about washing feet. First of all, washing feet was an essential part of life for this culture, okay? So I was trying to think about like a modern day equivalent. It would be like going camping for a week with flip-flops on the whole time, right? By the end of that week, you got some gangly looking toes. Your toenails are looking pretty nasty. Yeah, it reminds me of a, of a mission trip that, that I was a part of to the Philippines. And uh, we were out in the, in, the, in the rainforest for, I don't know, five days or so wearing sandals and flip-flops. Dude, by the end of that trip, our feet were looking nasty. Well, we had some time to kill at the Mall of Asia before we caught our flight, and so there were a few of us who went and got pedicures. <laughs> oh, those poor ladies. I mean, it was like Dumb and Dumber style, bringing out the chainsaw, like you thought they were like, like, like trimming horses' hooves. It was nasty. But understand, that was like their daily life. Like every day was like, they wore sandals or went barefoot, walking dirty, muddy, dusty roads. And so just part of your daily routine, like brushing your teeth, was washing your feet. But the other part of this we have to understand is that unless you were a person of nobility and a person of privilege and a person of wealth, you wash your own feet. Just like you brush your own teeth. You wouldn't ask somebody else to come brush your teeth, would you? No, I, just kinda, I do that. I brush my own teeth. You would wash your own feet. 
So it was something extraordinary if somebody washed your feet. That meant that the person washing the feet was, was a servant and the person whose feet were being washed was a person of authority. Okay? So that's what that would mean um, in this context. So as Jesus stands up, takes off his outer garment, and begins to wash his disciples' feet, he who is in authority is taking the place of the servant. And we're going to see that play out here. And of course, Peter is going to open his mouth. But we learn a lot when Peter opens his mouth, don't we? So, so thankful for Peter. So let's pick this up now in verse six. So he came to Simon Peter. So evidently he's going one by one. And so now he gets to Peter. He comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, a couple of things. Peter, in the cultural context, is recognizing it's not supposed to go this way. Are you really about to wash my feet, Jesus? To which Jesus says, here's what you need to know, Peter. Right now, you don't understand what I'm doing, but when I get done in a minute, then you will understand. So understanding what Jesus is doing is gonna come later, not right now. And the second part of that, Jesus makes a bold statement. Here's the thing, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. You don't share in my inheritance. You don't share in my salvation. You don't share in eternity with me. You don't share in a relationship with me. Our relationship is connected with what I'm about to do. And unless I wash your feet, Peter, you have no share with me. So then verse 11 excuse me, nine through 11. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now this could be a confusing part of the narrative, but it's super helpful in understanding the fullness of what Jesus was doing by washing his disciples' feet. One of the misunderstandings of what Jesus was doing here is that in some way he was symbolizing what he was about to do on the cross. Now it is true, on the cross, Jesus humbles himself. And on the cross, he not only takes the form of a servant, he takes takes on the form of a criminal for our sake, right? I mean, he's killed through a brutal criminal's death. Incredibly humble for the Savior, the Son of God, to do that. But in this moment, he's not specifically pointing to salvation and what he would do for us. He's actually pointing to something different, and we see that in this dialogue with Peter. So Peter's like, okay, if I don't have any share with you, unless you wash my feet, then, oh, dude, wash all of me then. I want to share with you. I want a relationship with you. I want to be with you eternally. Wash my hands, wash my head. But as I said earlier, the washing of feet was an essential part of life. You, you wouldn't bathe every day in the first century culture, but you would wash your feet every day. And that's what Jesus is getting at here symbolically. He's saying, Peter, you're already bathed, you're already clean. You just need me to wash your feet. 
Now, we know that as he referred to, to Peter being all clean, he's actually talking about his salvation. And he makes a distinction here when he says, listen, Peter, you're already clean. All, you're all clean. But then he says what? But not all of you are clean. And we go, well, I wonder what he meant by that. Well, who's not clean? If Peter's clean, who's not clean? Well, that's why verse 11 is in there. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. That statement was pointed at Judas. Judas was not all clean, but everybody else was. Now, we won't get very far into what I'm about to talk about, but this is important to note. How in the world was Peter and the rest of the disciples, except for Judas, already clean, meaning made righteous and forgiveness of sins, if Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet? That's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you're already clean. I've already cleaned you. Now think about that. How does that happen? Well, here's the short answer. The same, Peter was clean the same way Abraham was clean. Abraham was cleaned, made righteous by his faith, even before the cross. And so in this moment, Jesus is talking about that for the disciples. Those of you who've truly put your faith and trust in me, you're already clean. That's not what this is about. This is about something different. What I'm doing here, you don't understand, but in just a minute, you're gonna understand it. And so we pick this up now in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So now it's done, right? He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? So here's what Jesus is doing. He said on the front end, you guys aren't gonna get this until it's done. Now it's done and he's asking, do you understand what I've done? And, and we know Jesus is setting us all up for a lesson here, right? Because he, he wants to answer the question because in their minds they're like, nope, not yet, I don't get it. What, what did you do that for? Why would you wash our feet, Jesus? And so he begins to explain in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. So he's addressing that idea of only a person in authority was allowed to have their feet washed by a servant. And, he said, and he's pointing out the fact, you've got a problem with what I just did because I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord and I'm an authority in your life, yet I humbled myself and washed your feet. You call me teacher and Lord, you're right. That's who I am. Verse 14, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the foot washing wasn't solely about our relationship with Christ, him dying on the cross for our sins, him humbling himself to die a criminal's death. It had more to do with our relationships with each other. I'm doing this for you because I want you to do this for each other. You also should do just as I have done. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So now, we have to remind ourselves of who's present. Jesus is with the 12. He's talking about their intimate relationship with one another. And we're gonna see in just a minute, like what Jesus is applying here by washing feet is meant for those within the church to do towards one another. Before we ever talk about going out into the world, serving the world, being a light in the world, or even washing the feet of the world around us, Jesus is saying, listen guys, 
If you have a share with me, if you have a relationship with me, listen, I'm doing this to you as an example that you would do it for one another. Now, literally speaking, it would be quite odd to keep doing that even today in 2020, wouldn't it? Have you ever seen my feet? You don't don't want to wash my feet. I don't really want to wash your feet. But we know that Jesus is using this as a metaphor, a living metaphor to reflect something else. Something else he means for you and I to be willing to do for one. Now, it requires the same amount of humility. It requires the same amount of, of, of like lowering ourselves to serve one another. But he's not literally saying you must, every time you see each other, wash one another's feet. So what is he getting at here? Now, before we even answer that, I just want to point out something here about verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding in our culture today about what that means that God would bless us. And we typically, as a culture, even as a church culture, associate blessing with finances, possessions, notoriety, stature, position. We say, oh man, you're blessed. Man, you got such a great job. You are blessed, God has blessed you. Look at your business, God has blessed you. Look at your home, look at your possessions, you're blessed. Or we associate blessing with health. Man, you're so blessed to be healthy. Now, those things can be blessings, but they can also be a curse. So, right, money itself is not a blessing. So what I love about this is Jesus is saying, listen, you want a blessing? You want to live a blessed life? Then, then do what I just did for you to each other. You want to truly know what blessing looks like? Humble yourself and serve one another. Verse 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you what? You do them. You think about that. It's kind of awkward that Jesus, the son of God, would wash the feet of sinners. I get why Peter was having a problem with that. Now I'd apply it to our relationship with one another. Whatever Jesus means, that I would humble myself and do that for you or you do that for me, right? That's a, that challenges me. And Jesus said, listen, I know I'm asking you to do something hard, but trust me in this. If you do these things, you will find blessing. This makes me think about experiences I've had in the international mission um, world where I've got, had the opportunity to go to like third world countries that, you know, areas of like just extreme poverty, seen it you know, in, in places of poverty in Mexico and the Philippines and, and other places. Um, and if you've ever done that, like you've ever gone on a, on a mission trip to a third world country and just entered into the world of people who are poor and sat at the table and shared a meal that probably cost 57 cents and experienced the joy and the gratitude of that family, it, it'll, it'll rock you, won't it? If, you, if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In that moment, you're thinking, man, I can't get this kind of experience in my own home, gathered around a table with my family with a meal that costs 20 times this, right? Nobody's complaining, nobody's on their phone, nobody's distracted, nobody's ungrateful. So we know that money alone does not equate to happiness or blessing. You can be dirt poor and be blessed. This is what Jesus is describing. You can actually find blessing in having nothing in this world except for a relationship with me and a relationship with one another. 
Whatever I mean by washing one another's feet, if you will understand that and do it, you will find blessing. Now, let's go on to verse 34 and 35 because I think that the summary of what Jesus is getting at with the metaphor of washing one another's feet, I think he says it literally in verses 34 and 35. So everything building in chapter 13 is building, building, building in 34 and 35. Jesus says, here's the thesis statement. This is what I'm asking you to do for one another. Look at 34 with me. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Do you feel the parallel between that and the washing of feet? Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now he's saying, hey, you guys go do that for each other. And now here he's saying, just as I have loved you, that's how I want you to love one another. So the idea of washing one another's feet is a metaphor and a description to help us understand more deeply what he means by love one another. Now, we, again, we, are, we exist in a culture that defines love a million different ways. But Jesus is calling us to a love that is very distinct. It's a specific kind of love. How do we know that? Look at what he says. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Here it comes. Just as I have loved you. You feel the connection between washing feet? That's what he's getting at that whatever love I have loved you with, now you go out and love one another. But we have to back up for a minute. Jesus isn't just giving us advice or making a recommendation, is he? You really don't even need commentary on this. Jesus just gave us a command. He doesn't say, hey guys, if you really wanna be an awesome church that like is just really, really, really cool, then be willing to wash one another's feet. That's not what he's saying. He says, guys, listen to me. And he's talking to the 12 first, those who are true followers of Christ. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm commanding you to do this. If you are willing to wash one another's feet, you are willing to receive me washing yours. Why? How do we know that? He says, a a master is not above the servant. If I'm willing to humble myself and wash your feet, holy cow, you should be willing to do that for each other. I'm giving you a command that you love one another the same exact way I have loved you. I want to stop for just a minute because um, there's, a, there's something that will come up sometimes when we think about this idea that we've been called to love each other the way Jesus has loved us, and it'll come up in marriage counseling. If you've ever sat in marriage counseling with me and we've had this conversation, just pretend like I'm not talking about you, but I'm actually talking about you. So it always comes down to like where I'm challenging the husband and wife to like love each other from Ephesians 5, and to the husband I'm saying, listen, bro, You've been called to love her the same way Jesus loves the church. And then Ephesians 5 says, here's how, what that looks like. He laid down his life for her. And oftentimes the husband will say, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. Okay, and what is meant by that is, I'm not Jesus, I'm not perfect, so I don't even really want to try. Right, and so that's going to take a lot of effort to love my wife that way. And since I'm not Jesus, I'm not even going to engage in that. And here's how I respond to that. Um, John 13 commands you to do it. It commands you to do it. Matter of fact, the Bible would say, unless you're doing it, you're actually not loving her. So I get it. You're not Jesus, and I'm not Jesus, and we can't do this perfect, but we've been called to do it with everything that we are. 
all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, to love her the same way Jesus has loved you. And I get it, you're not gonna be perfect, but that does not excuse you from giving it everything you have. Now apply that to the church and our relationships with one another. If we try to bring up that excuse like, dude, you're just not easy to love and I'm not Jesus, so I'm just gonna tolerate you. When you get on my nerves, I'm gonna look the other way. I may not even show up and do things if I know you're gonna be there. This is not a suggestion. Jesus says, listen, I'm commanding you as my church to love one another this way. And so then we ask the question, well, are you sure he's really talking about the church? Well, yeah, because if we keep reading verse 35, he makes it pretty clear. Look at what he says in 35. By this, what's the this? Loving each other. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is saying, you wanna be a light to the world out there? The only way that they're gonna know you belong to me is by the way you sacrificially and humbly love one another. What does that look like, Jesus? I'll show you what it looks like. Watch this. And he washes their feet. Your love for, for, for anybody else within the church should look like that. Humble, serving, the washing of one another's feet. Now let's talk about a couple of things. Just like we talked about earlier, the more you get to know somebody, the harder they are to love. That's true for marriage and that's true in church. Just telling you that. If you right now primarily show up on Sundays, it's pretty easy for you to love the version of me that you see on Sundays. And it's pretty easy to love the rest of the people in the room because you aren't really talking to each other for the most part. But it's a whole other thing if we choose to take a step further into that relationship, isn't it? To maybe spend time with one another outside of this room, share a meal with one another. You and I know that's risky business because I may not like you, and then what? You may not like me, and then what? Jesus didn't recruit his disciples that way, did he? Hey, the 12 of you, if you guys can get along, how about we go out and we do something to change the world? Peter didn't get to choose John. You didn't get to choose the other people who are in Christ, who are part of your church family. And here's why I'm saying that. To truly get to what Jesus means here, you've gotta be willing to take a step further into relationships. To let people get to know you, the worst version of you, and for you to get to know them. I'm gonna read in just a minute through um, a list of commands from the New Testament that are specifically commanded to Christians in relationship with other Christians, okay? So before we can have a loving relationship towards the world, we first gotta figure it out in here. That's what Jesus said. This is how the world will know your mind, by how you love one another. What does that look like? It looks like washing each other's feet. Listen to this list. I'm gonna read through it fairly quickly. These all come from the New Testament. They're commands given to you and me on how we are to love and treat one another. Um, if, if after the service is done, you want a copy of this, there's some over here, I'll give you one because I'm gonna go through it fast. But I want you to listen, just let, listen to the description of what it looks like for you and I to wash one another's feet. Starting here. Serve one another. Greet one another. Welcome and accept one another. 
Make peace with one another. Edify and build one another up and do not tear one another down. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Lay down your life for one another. Do not lie to one another, but instead walk in transparency and in the light with one another. Be devoted to one another. Be patient with one another. Be humble towards one another. Be more interested in one another's interests than your own interests. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Admonish and rebuke one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Meet with one another. Show concern for one another. Be kind and compassionate towards one another. Is anybody convicted yet? Besides me? I'm just halfway through the list. Live in peace and harmony and unity with one another. Sing with and to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Wash one another's feet. Honor one another. Teach and instruct one another. Strive for restoration in your relationships with one another. Agree with one another. Rejoice with one another. Comfort one another. Show hospitality towards one another. Do not grumble or complain against one another. Do not be conceited toward one another. Do not provoke one another to anger. Do not be envious of one another. Do not pass judgment on one another. Do not cause one another to stumble and do not speak evil against one another. There's 40 examples and that's, I'm not saying that's all, but there are 40 commands right there that are meant for the church to live out towards one another. And Jesus says, if you'll love each other this way, the world out there will know you're mine. In the same way I washed your feet, you guys as a church, you go out there and wash one another's feet. Serve one another. Two things I want to point out. Jesus initiates this kind of love. He didn't say, all right, guys, I'm going to pass around a bowl of water, and I want you all to take turns washing each other's feet. He initiates it, right? He says, me first. And now I want to talk about something in terms of relationships within the church. It can be challenging to get past Sunday mornings into the depth of relationships within the church. Some of you are super outgoing and you're like, what, it's no big deal, I got tons of friends. Right? Doesn't matter what service I come to, I feel like I got friends all around me. Listen, there's a group of people, it doesn't matter what church you go to, it's hard. First of all, it's just risky and scary maybe because you're not outgoing, but second of all, like you don't know how to get in, it feels like there are clicks here and everybody seems to know each other and I don't know how to get in, okay? I want you to imagine a church where everybody in the church, everybody who calls themselves a Christ follower takes the same initiative Jesus did here to initiate relationships, to humble and to serve one another. Can you imagine the biblical community that would come out of that place? It's easier for some than others and it feels so good when somebody invites you to something, doesn't it? It does, to be wanted, to be included and and how do I get that? It begins by being willing to initiate. Point of application right now, something I've challenged all three services with today, I would love for you to get the contact information of somebody whose contact information you don't currently have before you leave here today. Because if I get in a bind and I get in a low spot, if I don't know how to reach out to you, how am I gonna do it? 
How am I gonna invite you to lunch? How are we gonna go grab coffee if we don't have one another's contact information? Like this take, it's risky, <laughs> right? But Jesus is saying, listen, watch me. I'm gonna take a step forward towards you to serve you. Now, you go do that. And just imagine, church, how amazing this place would be if we were all willing to take that same level of risk and take that same level of initiative towards one another, saying, listen, I don't know you, and this may seem awkward, but I'd love to go lunch with you. I have yet to tell, have a person tell me no yet. Now, they may be out there, but seriously, like, hey, can we go grab lunch? I'd like to get to know you better. That feels good, doesn't it? And the question is, are we willing to be the one to initiate? And I just want you to imagine a church where people selflessly and intentionally go out of their way seeking these kind of relationships. Last week, week one, before we can be a shining light of hope to the world around us, we must first knit our hearts together in Christ-exalting worship. Week two, today, before we can go into the world to be a shining light of hope to the world around us, we must first humble ourselves before one another in sacrificial love. The love that you have for me is supposed to cost you something, and the love I have for you is supposed to cost me something. And that's what Christ is calling us to Next week, we're gonna come back now. We're gonna talk about when we get these two things right, what does it look like to take that love and that light and bend it out to the world around us? But for now, what I wanna do is I wanna pray together with you and invite our worship team up. If there's something going on in your life that you want prayer for, um, our pastors would be down front and we would love to pray with you. If you just wanna come up and ask questions or grab a copy of these 40 commands or you know, if you're new or visiting, we'd love to meet you as well. But before we even do that, we're gonna sing together and I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit of God to work in our midst today. Whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're thinking about, I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to meet you there and to wrestle with you, to show you what he has for you today. So let's pray together as our worship team gets ready to lead us. Um, Father, we thank you for this very clear yet challenging command from Jesus to love one another. And we don't have to ask, what do you mean? Because Jesus, you show us what you mean. You showed us what this looks like in, in just humbling yourself and washing the feet of the 12. And so Jesus, now what you're commanding us to do is to take that same approach towards our relationships with one another. And God, we confess that we are not good at this, yet you're still commanding it of us. You're still commanding us to love one another this way. And so God, we're praying that Solid Rock Church could become this, this beacon of light, of hope to the community around us. But Father, today we realize we can't do that until we learn to love one another well. And so Father, I'm praying that God, by your Holy Spirit working in us, that God, you would ignite this passion and this fire, this, this desire within each one of us to walk in authentic biblical community, real relationships, knowing the best of one another, knowing the worst of one another, yet still choosing to serve one another. God, could you take this John chapter three description of the church, God, and could you, could you stir that in us here at Solid Rock Church? Father, we just confess that in order for this to happen, we've gotta be willing to let go of some things. Some of us, God, are, are holding on to comfort. We're holding on to ego. 
Some of us are holding on to selfishness. Father, we're holding on to things that are keeping us from taking this step. So, Father, we need your help. We pray your Holy Spirit would move through our hearts today. Stir in us. Work in us this truth that we just read. God, show us what it would look like for each one of us to go out and live this way this week. God, we pray for any person here who does not know you. That, Father, today you would call that person to yourself to trust in Jesus as Savior for the first time. So, Father, we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.